The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 114, when Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. The sea saw it and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the little hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you fled? O Jordan, that you turned back. O mountains, that you skipped like rams. O little hills like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of waters. We're going to read you Colossians 2, verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. I'm going to keep reminding you of this on these Leviticus sermons. The law is wiped out. It is nailed to the cross. It is taken away and all of these other things. So there you go. We're going to go to the book of Hebrews. We're going to go to chapter 7, verse 12. For the priesthood being changed, which we're under the law of Moses right now and we're reading about the priesthood of Aaron. Well, that was changed. Who is the new high priest? The new high priest is Jesus. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. Okay. Verse 18, for on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment, the commandment that we're looking at, which is the law of Moses, because of its weakness and unprofitableness. The Bible itself tells us that the law of Moses is weak and unprofitable. Okay, chapter 8, verse 13, in that he says a new covenant, speaking of the psalmist, writing about a new covenant, or maybe speaking of Jeremiah, a new covenant, yes, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Obsolete means what? Still running, right? No, it means gone. It's done. It's over. All right? So it's obsolete. And then we have um, Hebrews 10, verse 9. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. The first is the law of Moses. It's taken away. He establishes the second, the new covenant in Christ's blood. Okay? We need to remember this. I want you to be aware of those verses week by week by week because people will come to you and they'll ask you questions. They're going to ask you questions about, um, you know, they may not even ask a question. They may make a post on Facebook that somebody says, well, we are saved by grace and nothing else. And then somebody comes and says, oh, well, I disagree with that. And he starts getting into an argument with you like happened to Jim this week. Right? person that's on fire for the Lord, but at the same time, he's mixing dispensations. And because he is, his theology is messed up. You have to keep your dispensations separate. Anyway, there you go. That's your uh, reminder for the week, and we're going to get into Leviticus 12, verses 1 through 8. All right, it's the entire chapter. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman is conceived and born a male child... Then she shall be unclean seven days, as in the days of her customary impurity, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. She shall then continue in the blood of her purification 33 days. She shall not touch any hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are fulfilled. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks. 
as in her customary impurity, and she shall continue in the blood of her purification 66 days. When the days of her purification are fulfilled, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove as a sin offering to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who is born a male or a female. And if she is not able to bring a lamb, then she may bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. One is a burnt offering and the other is a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for her and she will be clean. This is going to be really, really complicated in some parts of the sermon today. And yet all of you will get the overall picture. It's just that this is a very, very precious passage which has to be really spoken very clearly and very precisely or you're going to get into error so there's going to be some things that you're just going to say I don't understand what he's saying don't worry about it just go read it online and you'll follow it no problem okay here's a question for you who does God favor the book of Isaiah says that the Lord who is the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity and whose name is holy whose throne is in heaven and whose footstool is the earth This great one will look upon the one who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at his word. There are lots of rich folk in the world. We know this. Some have millions, some have hundreds of millions, and some have billions. The world is working towards its first trillionaire, and it's a coin toss as who it will be. But just ask the Lord about that. Big deal, he will say. In fact, Jesus said, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Fancy cars, lots of money, a big house with a great view. It is as temporary as the next market crash or the sudden telephone pole that runs in front of your car. And more, if that is where you have put your hope, it truly is an abomination to God. He despises your priorities. Nothing like those things lasts forever. Nothing. But the favor of God does. And he favors the poor that has a contrite spirit far more than he favors an arrogant, rich son of another rich guy. The question is, just how poor can you get and still be in favor with him? Well, we can go to the Bible and we can find out. Our text verse comes from 2 Corinthians 8. It's the ninth verse. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. The Bible says that Jesus Christ was rich. He was rich indeed. He possessed all of heaven's riches, all of its power, all of its glory. And yet he came and walked among us. He was so poor that we read in the book of Luke that certain women whom Luke goes on to name provided for him out of their substance. In today's world, that might seem like a real bonus, have a lady support you. But in Israel of old, that would have been a very humbling experience. It is not the kind of thing that one would openly brag about. But the Bible actually highlights it so that we know his state among the people. And more, it was pretty much always this way for him. Take time to read through the New Testament and you will get hints of it elsewhere. Maybe we'll bring it up later in this sermon once again. Yes, I think we will. So stay awake, pay attention, and we'll get through these verses that I know you're shaking your head over and saying, what on earth do I care about these eight verses Charlie just read to me? Well, I'll tell you something, you will. 
you will care. And do you know why? Because it's a part of his magnificent and superior word. And you, like me, are the type who trembles at his word. It is perfect, it is holy, and it is a delight to the eyes and a joy to the heart. It is the wisdom of God revealing his son in each passage, on every page and through every word. It is his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have only two thoughts for you today. The first is, after the birth of a child, it's all eight verses, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, chapter 11 dealt with clean and unclean foods, all things which could be eaten or which were forbidden to be eaten. It opened with the words, now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying to them, chapter 12 begins an entirely new thought which is once again introduced in the normal way by stating the words, Vedaber Yehovah el Moshe Lemor, and spoke Yehovah unto Moses, saying, Aaron is once again left out of the words of instruction. What will be spoken is a completely different thought than chapter 11, but it still deals with what is clean and what is unclean. Interestingly, the pattern that follows that of the Genesis creation account, the animals were first described as having been created, right? You had the animals, and only then were the humans created. The animals which could render an Israelite unclean were first detailed, and then that which is from man and which caused impurity in man is then detailed. So we're seeing a pattern between Genesis and Leviticus. As we saw, the named animals gave each a picture of something else. Therefore, that which is outside the body and physical, but which caused spiritual defilement was first named. Now that which comes from within the body and which is spiritual, that of inherited sin and which caused more spiritual defilement is named. This is a chapter which has caused consternation for some people. It is as if they feel the Lord is saying there is some type of wrongdoing in having children. For example, a general search on the book of Leviticus chapter 12 on Google came up with this question immediately. Is Leviticus 12 saying that giving birth to a child is sin? This type of question, or one about why female children bring about a longer duration of uncleanliness than a male, are most common. There certainly must be a valid reason for each thing instructed in this chapter, but the words certainly seem foreign to anything that we consider in our normal day-to-day thoughts. Verse 2, speak to the children of Israel, saying, The contents of this chapter were to be relayed to all of the people. They were not a set of instructions merely for the priests to receive and contemplate, but all of Israel was to be informed of the guidelines which are presented here. It was something to be ingrained in the national psyche so that when the issue came about, it would be adhered to. Verse 2 going on, if a woman is conceived and born a male child, Isha ki zakar. Woman, if bring forth seed and bears male. The word translated as conceived is the verb form of the word zerah, or seed, commonly used in the Genesis creation account, and which was also used in Genesis 3, verse 15, with the promise of a coming redeemer. It is that by which life continues on. The woman here has conceived zerah because she has received seed, or zerah, in order for that to come about. In this case, the result is a male child. Verse 2 going on, then she shall be unclean seven days. A state of defilement is noted because of the birth of the child. The uncleanness belonged to her, however, not to the child. 
Nothing is mentioned concerning premature birth here, and so this indicates that whenever the child is born, the state of uncleanness exists. And even though the uncleanness belongs to her, it is the result of the beginning of the life. The life began, and at some point a child would be born, resulting in uncleanness for the mother. Verse 2 continues, As in the days of her customary impurity, she shall be unclean. The days of her customary impurity is speaking of the monthly period cycle. This is specifically recorded in Leviticus 15 with very detailed instructions. The first verse of that section says this, If a woman has a discharge and the discharge from her body is blood, she shall be set apart seven days and whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. Before I go on, do we practice that now in the church? Why not? The law is annulled in Christ. People that pick and choose the law and say you have to observe a Sabbath or not eat this food are so dishonest that it is beyond comprehension. The law is done. The word for customary impurity here is nida. This is the very first of 29 times it's going to be used, and most of them are going to be in Leviticus and Numbers. It comes from the word nadad, meaning to flow or depart. Thus it is that which flows. The word for impurity is found only here, right here in this verse in the entire Bible. It is dava. It gives the sense of being sick as if in menstruation. The state of impurity for childbirth follows the same line of reasoning as for the menstrual cycle. There has been an issue of blood, which then causes defilement to the woman. The fact that the impurity of childbirth is to be the same as for that of having a period, even before the law of the period has been given, shows that the custom was already known and it was already practiced, even before it became a part of the law. This is evident from an account all the way back in Genesis chapter 31. Here's what it says. Now Rachel, or Rachel, had taken the household idols, put them in the camel's saddle, and sat on them. And Laban searched all around the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is with me. And he searched, but did not find the household idols. He wouldn't go near where she was sitting, and she protected herself. And it's a picture of something else. Go back and watch that sermon. Great stuff. Verse 3, And on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Surprisingly, this is the only time in Leviticus that mul, or circumcision, is mentioned. Upon the ending of the time of the flow of her sickness, the child was then to be circumcised. This, however, corresponds to what was originally prescribed for circumcision in the first place. That's recorded all the way back in Genesis 17. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants, after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The ending of the woman's customary impurity coincides with the time for the rite of circumcision. The importance of these two events coinciding in this way is because anything or anyone who touched a woman in such a time of impurity was considered unclean until evening. 
Thus, the child whom she nursed and held would be considered as such. So think, you've got this guy coming to perform uh, circumcision, and if she was still unclean and the baby's touching her, then he would be unclean. That couldn't happen. Therefore, the circumcision of the child needed to be conducted after this time of defilement and also in accord with what was prescribed to Abraham in Genesis 17. Everything fits perfectly in God's law to ensure that all will come out as it is intended to be for his people. Unlike laws in America, nothing in the law will cause a person to break one law while being obedient to another. And I'd like to tell you that every single person here in this church right now is guilty under the law of America because there are laws which contradict each other. And if you don't do this, then you're guilty this way. They can arrest you any day of your life in America for something that you didn't even know you were guilty of. That's They've got this system set up that way because people are incompetent and they make laws which will contradict. The Bible will never, never do that. Verse 4, she shall then continue in the blood of her purification 33 days. The noun tahorah, or purification, is introduced right here. It will be seen 15 times, mostly in Leviticus, but a few other times throughout the Old Testament. It comes from the verb tahur, which means to be clean or to make pure. Thus, it is the state of purification, and in this case, the state of pure blood. The state was to continue for 33 days, making the total time of her cleansing 40 days. What needs to be understood is why these things are decreed. Leviticus 17.11 tells us that the life of the flesh is in the blood. When a woman has her period, it is blood that is no longer used for the purpose of life. Thus, death is associated with it. As death is the result of sin, it is considered unclean. When a woman becomes pregnant, periods end, and the blood is redirected for the purpose of advancing life. When that life finally comes forth, the blood is no longer needed for the child in the same way, and the body begins to go back to that previous state. But she does produce milk for the child. During this transition phase, the blood is in its state of purification. Verse 4 continues, She shall not touch any hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are fulfilled. During these final 33 days, she was not considered unclean except in regard to the holy things. So you can touch her. She can do all this other stuff. Nothing holy, though. She could not touch the first tithes, the flesh of offerings, and so on. Further, she was forbidden from entering the sanctuary during this time. This is all picturing something else. I want you to know that in advance. However, other than being kept separate from these holy things, she could live a normal life in any other respect. Her blood was regarded as tahorah, or in a state of purification, and not nidah, or an impure state. Verse 5, but if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her customary impurity. The period of impurity is doubled for that of a female child. Again, it is not the child who is deemed impure, it is the mother. And instead of seven days, it is now 14. However, the child will remain with the mother during the time of impurity. She will breastfeed and tend to that child constantly. The only difference that is noted in the entire passage is that the boy is circumcised and the girl is not. Thus, including circumcision, which would otherwise seem superfluous, must have a bearing on this period of purification. It is showing us a theological reason for the doubling. Although unknown to the Hebrew people why they circumcised, they knew that they were to circumcise. We now know that it was a picture of the coming Christ in whom the sin nature would be cut. 
As sin transfers from father to child, the rite of circumcision or cutting the male sex organ symbolized cutting away the sin nature. In the coming of Christ, who had no human father, the transfer of sin was cut in reality. His father being God, no sin was transmitted to him. Picture fulfilled. That's why you as Gentiles here don't have to be circumcised. We're not under the law. The picture being made is that in the circumcision of the child, the blood of sickness, that word deva, verse 2, which is found nowhere else in scripture, is cut from the child. Only the mother had it, and her time of sickness had run its course. But with the female child, there was no circumcision, and so she would continue on the sickness in her own life. Thus, a doubling of the time of uncleanness symbolizes this. The boy was an Israelite, but he was not a Hebrew until he was circumcised. But the girl, though an Israelite, was not considered as such. And so a doubling of the time of impurity is mandated to rectify this. Verse 5 continues, And she shall continue in the blood of her purification 66 days. 14 days plus 66 days totals 80 days. This is the time of purification for a female child. Not because there's anything wrong with being a female or with having a female, but because of the typology which the Lord is presenting to us. The time of separation is doubled because the girl was not circumcised. Thus, in type, her positional uncleanness as a female required its own 40-day period of separation. John Lang notes it this way. He says, The totality of the 40 days of purification at the birth of a boy corresponds to the former explanation of the 40 days in the life of Moses and Elijah. It is symbolical time of purification, of exclusion from the world, as it was extended for the whole people to 40 years. He's talking about the 40 years in the wilderness. Okay, He kind of got that wrong, but he got it right in a sense. I'm not going to get into that now, but we'll go on with his commentary. And the doubling of the 40 days in the the case of the newborn girl explains itself. If 40 days are reckoned for the girl and 40 for the mother, a doubling which could not be applied to the circumcised boy. What is seen here is typology, not actual human uncleanness. The boy is circumcised and is considered to have crossed over or become a Hebrew, as the name implies. The girl has not and must go through her own time of separation, and so the period is doubled in order to be inclusive of mother and child. The reason for that is, as I've already said, the mother and the child are always in contact with one another. Therefore, their state of uncleanness is shared between one another. In the case of a male, it is only in one direction. Thus, the ending of her 40 days ends the time of separation for both of them. Verse 6, When the days of her purification are fulfilled, whether for a son or a daughter, on the 41st day for a male, or on the 81st day for a female, the days of purification were considered fulfilled. It is at this time that, verse 6 continues, she shall bring to the priest a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering, and a young pigeon or a turtle dove as a sin offering to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. There is an equalizing of male and female here, which completely discounts any notion of greater uncleanness being derived from a female as there is for a male. The entire argument is shown as absurd by these words. The same sacrifice is required for either a male or a female. The state of uncleanness is then theological and typological, not natural. The Lord is giving us insights into the coming Messiah and the process of redemption in these verses. In the offering itself, the burnt offering is noted first 
and it is the greater and more expensive offering. The sin offering is only noted afterward, and it is small in proportion to that of the burnt offering. These come in exactly the opposite for the normal order of offerings where the sin offering was always presented first. The burnt offering is a demonstration of the consecration of dedicating this new life to the Lord. The sin offering is for the ending of the extended period of uncleanness to the mother. The sin offering is not for sin committed, but for the state of human sin which exists in her. It is a type of ceremonial defilement. For these, a kebes ben shnato, or lamb, son of his year, was to be presented for the burnt offering. This is a lamb still within its first year. Along with that, a dove, or a turtle dove, was to be presented for a sin offering. Together, these were to be presented, as it says, at the door of the tent of meeting. This actually means, as we have seen multiple times in previous sermons, at the altar of burnt offering. However, the sacrifice at the altar is what symbolically allows access through the door of the tent of meeting. From there, the person would symbolically be brought into the holy place of the tabernacle. Each of these offerings, typical of Christ as previously seen, was made in anticipation of the truths which they picture in his coming. They were to be presented to the officiating priest. Verse 7, Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Here the stress is laid on the sin offering. It is that which makes a covering or atonement for the mother. It is typical of the atonement of Christ for all sin, both inherited and committed. Verse 7 going on, And she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. Upon the completion of the sin offering, the woman was atoned for, and she was considered clean from the flow of her blood. The word for flow here, makor, is new to scripture. It indicates a spring or a fountain which has been dug out, and thus it is euphemistically applied to the flow of menstruation. It's going to be used just 18 times, and only in Leviticus is it used in this way. It is used elsewhere at times when actually speaking of the Lord, as him being the fountain of living waters or the fountain of cleansing and so on. The flow of her blood has made the woman unclean, and yet the blood which flowed within the woman to nurture Christ formed the most precious blood of all, even springing up to be the fountain of living waters which can heal all people from sin and uncleanness. Think that through. Think of the magnitude of what God has done in Christ coming into the world. Verse 7 continues, This is the law for her who is born a male or a female. It is this law prescribed in the previous verses, which is to be fulfilled according to its words for a woman who is born a male or a female. There are no exceptions in this verse when taken in connection with scripture, which is found in the New Testament, disproves wholly and completely the idea of immaculate conception. It is a false teaching which is heretical in what it states and what it implies. This will be explained while evaluating the final verse of this chapter, verse 8. And if she is not able to bring a lamb, then she may bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. One is a burnt offering and the other is a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for her and she will be clean. The way the Hebrew reads here is, and if her hand is not able to reach what is sufficient for a lamb. In other words, the hand is used to describe what the hand acquires. It would be like saying, Charlie's face could never make him a model. The face is being used to describe the woeful appearance which no modeling agency would hire. In this verse, the words are intended to mean that the woman is too poor to be able to afford a lamb. 
In such a case, an allowance was made that the family might bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons instead of a lamb, and a pigeon or a turtle dove. The burnt offering could be lessened from the lamb to the bird. This gracious act would have probably been very, very, very infrequently used. First, in such a case of rejoicing, the family would surely have extended family who could help out with such a thing, right? Secondly, there was an extended period of time to prepare for it. From the time that it was known that a child was due until the time of her purification being over, the family could prepare for such a wonderful offering to the Lord. Think, it's 10 months. They could prepare to get a lamb. To come with just two birds would thus show the magnitude of the poverty of the people who so came forward. And yet, this is what occurred at the temple in Jerusalem just at the time of the birth of Israel's true king. The one who possessed all of heaven's riches condescended to come to earth to dwell among men. But he didn't do it in a king's house, at least not in the house of an earthly king. Instead, he came to the poorest of the poor. In the Gospel of Luke, we read these words. Now in the days of her purification, speaking of Mary, according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him, speaking of Christ, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what it is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. In the case of this birth, the child who was called holy to the Lord was and is the Lord. And yet his parents were in such abject poverty that they could afford but a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. With the presentation of these humble offerings of sacrifice, the priest would have thus declared Mary, the mother of the Lord, cleansed. And so that brings us back to the concept of immaculate conception. If Mary was born sinless, as the Roman Catholic Church claims, if she remained sinless throughout her life, and if she was the receptacle of the sinless Son of God, which the last one is true, then there would be no sin of any kind to be atoned for, imputed, or committed, and thus the offering would not have to be made. But Mary did have to offer for herself, and thus the Bible bears witness that there is but one who is sinless, and that is Jesus Christ the Lord. It is heretical to say that she bore no sin, for several important reasons. First, if God could make a person sinless apart from Jesus Christ, then there would be absolutely no reason for Jesus Christ. Secondly, if Mary was sinless, then she could be an acceptable redemptrix or mediatrix for man. But the Bible says otherwise of both. There is one redeemer and there is one mediator. All typology and all written scripture demonstrates that Christ alone is sinless and that we are to fix our eyes and our thoughts on Christ alone. And we are to submit our prayers to God through him alone. Soon I will be cleansed from all defilement. The time of purification is now complete. And so at the sanctuary I have an appointment. Yes, towards the sanctuary I will move my feet. I will make an offering to my God, a burnt offering and a sin offering too. And so with my sandals, I am shod to the sanctuary I go, and this I shall do. There, for my impurity and my sin, comes my atonement. The priest will perform the rite, and I will be clean. I will certainly not miss this appointment. And so the trek to the sanctuary I now convene. And with me will go this beautiful child, the one whom God gave me, when upon me he smiled. What a marvel and a mystery. How will it all turn out? 
Praise the Lord who has brought this thing about. Our second thought today is pictures of Christ and his work. Having looked at these verses and seen the requirements of the law, we still need to ask ourselves, if the defilement of the woman was typological, then what type is being presented to us? We've seen shades of Christ, but just dabs here and there. What is the overall picture showing us? Well, first of all, we see the concept of inherited sin. Man is born of a woman, and that very act, according to the law, brings about a state of uncleanness. Thus, it is something that is inherited in all people, because all are born of a woman, and all can potentially be the parent of a woman. As this state of uncleanness is part of the biological processes of the woman, then it shows that the uncleanness is an inherited one. As this is so, then there must have been an original sin from which it came. Sin cannot evolve into a being. Rather, it occurred as an infraction against God, and it is then transmitted to those who follow after. As I said in verse 2, the uncleanness belongs to the mother. It is the result of the beginning of the life. The life began, and at some point, a child would be born, resulting in uncleanness for the mother. The uncleanness is not acquired from the child, but from the child-bearing process. It's already within her. Further, the fact that this defiled state, which resulted from the issue of blood, was understood before the time of the giving of the law, as was seen in the account of Rachel and Laban, it shows that the law did not introduce the uncleanness. Instead, it simply defined it and what was to be done with it at that time. The time periods, however, are introduced now. Seven days and 33 days and 14 days and 66 days. The only remarkable distinction between the two which could justify the difference is the rite of circumcision. As we know, circumcision points directly and specifically to Christ. I bring that up at the end of almost every sermon. And so the 40 days and the 80 days must then point to what he has done as well. To understand the significance of what is being said, we must remind ourselves of what the number 40 signifies in Scripture. E.W. Bollinger defines it for us. He says, It has long been universally recognized as an important number, both on account of the frequency of its occurrence and the uniformity of its association with a period of probation, trial, and chastisement, not judgment. It is the product of five and eight and points to the action of grace leading to and ending in revival and renewal. This certainly is the case where 40 relates to a period of evident probation, all being pictured right here in these verses. A time of probation, trial, and chastisement, but not punishment, is seen in picture by bearing of the male child. However, John Lang, which I read earlier, was right as to why it was doubled for the female when he said, and the doubling of the 40 days in the case of the newborn girl explains itself. If 40 days are reckoned for the girl and 40 for the mother, a doubling which could not be applied to the circumcised boy. The mother with the circumcised child picturing Christ was cleansed by a period of 40 days. However, the female required an additional 40 days because there was no circumcision involved to purify the female. And so their time of uncleanness was served not concurrently, but sequentially and in full for each. Here then we have a picture being made, a picture of the law and grace. This was first seen in the account of Moses receiving the law. He was on Mount Sinai how long? 40 days and 40 nights, the same length of time as for the cleansing from giving birth to a male child. But Israel was down in the valley doing something, weren't they? They were whipping up a golden calf. 
even after having agreed to the covenant. Then they broke the covenant, and the covenant was broken, symbolized by Moses dashing those tablets to the ground. What we don't see until Deuteronomy is that Moses' second ascent up the mountain was also for 40 days and 40 nights. Here's what it says. And I fell down before the Lord as at the first 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all of your sin, which you committed in doing wickedly in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He petitioned the Lord for mercy and they received it. When he came down with the second set of tablets, they were placed inside of the ark, which clearly pictured Christ. If you didn't see that sermon, go watch it. He is the embodiment of the law pictured by them being placed into the ark and under the mercy seat. The two periods of 40 days then in themselves look forward to the work of Christ, which still lay ahead. And so we have here a picture of Israel being born of a woman and being circumcised on the eighth day, which in type ends the nida or impure state that she's in. From there, she's in the state of tahorah or purification for 33 more days or to the end of the full 40 days. However, this is only a picture. No Israelite could meet the demands of the law, and so they still needed what? Grace. This was until the coming of Christ, the true Israel and the fulfillment of the picture of circumcision. Sin was cut in him. Literally, 40 days after his birth from the womb of Mary, Christ, the second Adam, was presented at the temple in human flesh. After that, and during his life, he endured 40 days of trial, carefully recorded in all three synoptic gospels. He defeated the devil then, and he continued to defeat him throughout his life, finally going to the cross, still sinless and thus acceptable as an offering to God for the sins of the people. This is the time of the law, 40 days of trial for the law. From there, he rose again, offering grace to the people. But remember, the 40 days of purification under the law was only typical of Christ, not Israel under the law. They were not cleansed by the law because they had inherited sin. Only those under the law who looked forward to Christ were truly saved, and that by faith, not by the law. Like the mother who was awaiting the end of her 40 days, they were progressing toward a state of cleanness, but only in picture. Those 40 days are a period of probation leading to revival and renewal in Christ, just as Bollinger explained. This is the law leading to grace. The mother who bore a female, however, had to go through 80 days. This is symbolized by Christ's first 40 days and then his second 40 days. These second 40 days are actually recorded in Acts chapter 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. There was the law, there was the fulfillment of the law in Christ, and then there was the pouring out of grace. After his resurrection, or what could be considered his birth from the grave, as is seen in Colossians 1.18 and Revelation 1 verse 5, he is the firstborn from the dead, it's the second birth, he was again presented in human flesh, but this time it was at the ascension and to the heavenly temple. 40 days at the earthly temple, 40 days ascending to the Father in the heavenly temple. There, we are presented in him, 
cleansed and purified. This is the time of grace, 40 days for grace. Throughout the years, it's been argued that the longer period of cleansing for a female represented a lower status of women within the society. But this is incorrect. Samuel Ballantyne actually explains it, and it's kind of a poke at those people who said that. Listen to what he says. Great logic here. The logic of this interpretation is faulty for at least two reasons. First, Leviticus 27 assigns a higher value to males because of their ability to carry out the heavy labor associated with the sanctuary, not because of their inherent worth. Second, the rationale behind the priestly purity system would suggest that the potential for defilement is related to an object or a person's power, not weakness. Thus, if a female's impurities require more attention, it might well be argued that she must be accorded more regard, not less than a male. A little poke there, and good for you ladies, okay? And it is so, because of what this is picturing. In the Bible, there is far more regard for those under grace than there are those under the law. In fact, the law sets up a barrier between God and his people, doesn't it? Except for that intervention of Christ himself, who is the fulfillment of these types and pictures. As he is perfect and without sin, the first 40 days was for him, proving that he is the true and circumcised male child. For all in the body looking forward to him, they are cleansed by his word. The time after his resurrection from the grave was for those of us who come after the fully cleansed female. This is why the terms congregation or edah in Hebrew and church or ecclesia in Greek are, guess what? They're both feminine words. Both are purified completely and wholly through the grace of Jesus Christ. And we will be presented as a called out group and as a chaste virgin to one husband free from all defilement because of the work of Christ. And so in this passage today, we see that everything, everything points to him. The circumcised male child, Christ. The purification of the female through his grace. The time frames given to show us pictures of this. The burnt offering of the lamb. The perfect and acceptable fragrant offering to God, who is Christ. Or the dove and the turtle dove, which is also Christ. The sin offering, the dove or the turtle dove, which is Christ. The cleansing, the atonement, it is all about Jesus Christ. Every beautiful word of this almost completely ignored or misinterpreted passage of scripture, every word points to Christ. And a point we should consider before we close concerns what Christ went through for us in his earthly life. As I said earlier, The law states that anyone who touched a woman in the time of her customary impurity would be considered unclean until evening. This means that Jesus was in this state for the first seven days of his life. Think it through. The Lord of all creation was considered ceremonially unclean according to his own law, which he gave to Israel for the first seven days of his own life. On the last day of his life, he then took all all of the uncleanness of man upon himself, thus becoming an unclean thing before us and before his father. If this doesn't show you the extent to which God was willing to go to reconcile us to himself, I'm not sure what else would. Unclean at birth, unclean at death, and yet the only purifier for the uncleanness of humanity. The amazing thing is that right in the middle of a book which causes eyes to glaze over and heads to nod, there is treasure, rich and abundant treasure, if we'll just look for it. 
Never stop asking yourself, Lord, what are these verses here for? With time and study, it will be revealed to you. But there is a truth that you need to consider. You cannot tie in the rest of Scripture unless you know the rest of Scripture. Isn't that right? Open it. Read it. Listen to it as you drive. Meditate on it. Contemplate it. Memorize it. Return to this well day and night. The more you are in it, the more it all comes together to make perfect sense. In the end, it is all about Jesus Christ. Each section is intended to show us this. And with Jesus, there is a plan which is being worked out, this marvelous, grand, beautiful plan. It is a plan where life and purity is drawn out from death and impurity. If that life isn't drawn out, then we will remain forever unclean and impure. And so the fact is that we need Jesus. You need Jesus. Let me tell you about how you too can have Jesus. The Bible makes it so simple that most people say it can't be that simple. And they spend the rest of their Christian life walking around saying, I can't believe that's so, I must be doing something wrong. If you call on the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved is saved. The Bible doesn't say you're going to be unsaved at any point in the future. That's a heresy. It's saying that what he did here for you is insufficient to keep doing it for you. He has saved you and you are saved, completely holy once and forever. What you do with that salvation is completely up to you. You can blow it and you can spend the rest of your life doing crazy things and losing all of your rewards in the presence of the Lord, standing there saying, I wasted what you gave me. But he is not going to renege on his promise. He has saved you. If you call on the name of the Lord Jesus and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And God did, in fact, raise him from the dead. It's testified to in the Bible He was resurrected. He was with the people 40 days. He ascended to heaven and presented himself at the temple. Man, the pictures in here are just amazing. The more you read this word, the more incredible it gets. And I'm just a dummy. I mean, I can read this and I can see what a wonderful word this is. Imagine if Einstein spent his time reading this instead of doing what he did. Not what he did wasn't good. But I mean, you take somebody with a good brain and they can get into this book. Imagine what is in here. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for this word. Our closing verse comes from Luke chapter 2. It's verses 29 through 32. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Little pun there, the word salvation is Jesus. My eyes have seen your Jesus, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Great, huh? Next week is Leviticus 13, 1 through 17. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, won't this be fun? It's entitled The Law of Leprosy. Part one. Part one, thank you. (laughs) That'll be our 19th Leviticus sermon, okay? And it will be fun. It's going to take us, I think, three sermons to get through it. You're going to be so sick of leprosy when we get done. You're going to, but you'll love it. I know, it's all pictures of Christ. Just like the dietary laws, you're going to love it. Of what? (laughs) Leprosy. Leprosy, with and of, whatever. You got it, you got it. It's all over you. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away, right? Today we see that. He can wash it away and he can purify you completely and wholly. So follow him and trust him and he'll do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Short poem and we're done. Purification after childbirth. 
Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, these are the words he was then relaying, speak to the children of Israel, saying, if a woman is conceived and born a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, so shall her state be as one defiled. And in the days of her customary impurity, she shall be unclean, so shall she be. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised, so it shall be done to him. She shall then continue in the blood of her purification 33 days. She shall not touch any hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary during this phase. Until the days of her purification are fulfilled, thus shall it be as I have willed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall for two weeks be unclean, as in her customary impurity. That totals days 14. And she shall continue in the blood of her purification 66 days according to this notification. When the days of her purification are fulfilled, whether for a son or a daughter, remember this thing. She shall bring to the priest the lamb of the first year as a burnt offering. And a young pigeon or a turtle dove as a sin offering to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her according to this detail. And she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who is born a male or a female. And if she is not able to bring a lamb, then she may two turtle doves or two young pigeons bring, one as a burnt offering and the other as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for her and she will be clean, no longer impure. Lord, who can bring out purity from that which is impure. How can we be cleansed when we are already found with sin? It seems like we were goners, a disease that we could not cure. Yes, surely it looked like we were done in. But from the woman came a child born without sin, and from him came, came cleansing for all. No longer are we fearful of being done in when upon the name of Jesus we do call. Hallelujah, the purity can come to we who are impure by calling on Jesus and being washed from all our sin. Now eternity is ours. His shed blood, this does ensure no longer are we fearful that we are done in. Thank you, O oh God, for our precious Lord Jesus. Thank you, O oh God, for all you have done for us. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the purity that exists in us now 100% complete, done forever because of Jesus Christ. In ourselves, we're impure, but because of his covering, when you see us, that's all you see is his purity, his glory, his majesty. And thank you for that, that he was willing to, you were willing to come out of the eternal realm and unite with human flesh and participate with us in that wonderful, wonderful experience of humanity, which is actually a gift, even though it hurts at times, even though it's painful, it is a gift, and we thank you that you participated in that gift with us and shared our lives, and you were taken to the earthly temple, and there you were brought with your earthly mother, and then you went into the heavenly temple, there with your heavenly Father. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done, and we thank you, Heavenly Father, for having arranged this for us, and we praise you, Holy Spirit, for fellowshipping with us and being with us in our lives guiding us and leading us and giving us your word, which we can trust in wholly and completely. Certainly we pray for Paul again today, Lord. We're very sorry that he's not with us to fellowship with us, but we pray for him and we ask that you help him through his time of trial. And uh, we just will continue to pray for him until you bring him back to us. And we also thank you that Beth and Jack have once again arrived safely in Sarasota, Florida, and it's good to have them home. 
We thank you for those who will be traveling next week, and we ask that you take care of them as well and keep them safe and bring them back here safely. We thank you for all these things, and we ask them, and we petition you for them in Jesus' name. Amen.